Welcome to Is It Halloween Yet? Episode 9, a spooky little podcast where we talk about all things horror and ask, is it Halloween yet? I'm afraid not ghouls, ghosts, and goblins. It's 110 days until Halloween. I'm your ghostess, Spencer. Let's see what we have on the slab this week. We've got a lot of news and a review of the movie Censor. So let's get started. With all of the sad and happy Lovecraft Country news that happened this week... Last week, Deadline reported that HBO was, quote, not moving forward with the second season of Lovecraft Country. People started to question this. It was a perplexing choice for the network, seeing as 105 million people tuned in to see season, the season one finale. And 10 million people had watched the premiere episode by the time that finale had aired. Show runner Misha Green took to Twitter to give us a taste of what we could see in a second season from the fall of the U.S. to the zombie apocalypse. Her tweet, her first tweet, she tells us about how the staff had been calling it Lovecraft Country colon supremacy. And it would take place in a world where there are now no longer the United States of America, but the sovereign states of America. And those sovereign states are the tribal lands of the West, which is everything west of Minnesota, basically, minus part of Texas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, and Missouri. All of those states are part of the White Lands. Everything south of West Virginia and most of Virginia was the New Negro Republic, and everything north of Pennsylvania was the Jefferson Commonwealth. She goes on to tell us that the White Lands are not what you are thinking. The White Lands is a territory that is completely overrun by zombies, most of them the slower varieties, but with pockets of fast-moving zombies, too. The price of the origin spell was the creation of a zombie population. Years into the epidemic, a joint effort was undertaken to corral the zombies into one location in the center of America. The White Lands now function as a dangerous border between South, West, and Northern territories. X marks the spot for where the source will appear. So that sounds like a lot of fantastic storytelling that we won't be getting. And then, because the cosmic world wanted to rub salt in the wound, we found out today that Lovecraft Country was nominated for 18 Emmys. Most of the actors were nominated. The writing was nominated. The director was nominated. It's up for best dramatic series. This is needless to say sent the show's fan base into a fury. They are taking to Twitter and tweeting for what I most frequently see to Apple to save the show to pick up the rights. I hope someone does. It's clear that Misha Green had a fresh vision to expand the world that the novel had set up and it's highly suspicious to me that such an unapologetically black show led by a black woman is getting canceled when shows with weaker writing and weaker premises are still being picked up and carried for multiple years by HBO. So, I don't know. I think that this might be the beginning of seeing that rot 
that has been happening at Warner Brothers start to creep over into HBO. It felt like HBO was kind of immune to that for some time, but it just feels like it's creeping over and that's sad. So hopefully somebody will pick up Lovecraft Country. Maybe winning 18 Emmys will make Lovecraft Country more viable to the network and we'll see a second season. But alas, we're going to move on to the next story. The Forever Purge had a pretty good showing in its first weekend. It opened with 15.8 million. That isn't bad when you consider that it was up against the juggernaut of a film that Fast 9 is. It dropped this past weekend only 43.1% to $7.1 million. And that also was another weekend where it opened up against a bigger title. Black Widow came out and did $80 million at the box office. So good. I'm glad. I want to see The Forever Purge. I hope that it comes home to streaming. That feels like a streaming movie to me. Not a saddle up and wear a mask kind of movie. We've got a bunch of Witcher news this week to get through as well. So let's start off with the fantastic news that everyone's favorite space emperor, Michelle Yeoh, has been cast in the Witcher prequel. The prequel movie called The Witcher Blood Origins. Michelle Yeoh will be playing a last of her tribe, tribal nomadic sword elf. We also got word this week that the prequel animated horror film The Witcher, Nightmare of the Wolf, will be coming in August, August 23rd, I think. Yes, correct. August 23rd. It will be on its way. It follows Vesemir, which is pretty cool because if you know anything about The Witcher, uh, Vesemir is Geralt's mentor. I'm excited to see that. It looks very interesting. We also got word that the... We also got word that the second season... We also got word that the second season of The Witcher will be headed our way in December. Zack Snyder also dropped a bunch of buzz on this week. The prequel to his fun, gory, Vegas zombie romp, Army of the Dead, will drop this fall. Army of Thieves follows Dieter, the lovable safe cracker from Army of the Dead. We're also getting a prequel anime series called Army of the Dead Las Vegas. It follows Dave Patisa's character from the movie around the first phase of the zombie breakout. I'm hoping that this show, especially the anime, will touch on what I thought were some missed opportunities with the themes of Army of the dead. I think it really set it up. You thought they were going to talk about how like terribly we treat veterans and then they kind of just left that dangling. I don't know. Call me a purist. I I have spent too long following Romero's zombie movies to to want my zombie movies to be free from an opinion. So, hopefully we see that in The Lost Vegas or even in Army of Thieves. That would be great. Snyder also announced his next collaboration with Netflix, Rebel Moon. This epic sci-fi fantasy story is written by Shay Hatton and Kurt Johnstad, both who have worked with Snyder before on Army of the Dead and 300, respectively. The story started as a pitch for Star Wars, and Snyder told The Hollywood Reporter that he hopes it can become a massive IP in the same way. As a Star Wars fan that is starting to become a lapsed Star Wars fan... I hope he gets his wish. I want an epic sci-fi fantasy that is really 
wants to be a sci-fi fantasy that expands its world and grows and becomes big, not constantly shrinks itself around the same handful of characters like we're getting with Star Wars. Universal has made it official that their movies will be headed to Peacock shortly after their theatrical debuts starting in 2022. The streaming service said we will see these new releases no later than four months after their screen debut. The biggest deal for horror fans is that the ending to the Blumhouse Halloween trilogy, Halloween Kills, is scheduled for release on October 22nd, along with the yet-to-be-revealed third Jordan Peele movie next summer. That's exciting. They're trying to make me like Peacock. We also have that Munster movie from Rob Zombie coming. So that's also rumored to be exclusively on Peacock, but I hope it does get the theatrical debut. He also, speaking of Rob Zombie, showed us the floor pans to the Munster Manor and it looks amazing. I can't wait. I think he's going to do a super good job. He's really into it and he seems like he really wants to meticulously recreate the world of the Munsters. So that's exciting. What's not exciting is Ted Bundy is still trendy, even though we've covered his cases, the man and his bullshit to death. Two movies are headed our way. American Boogeyman starring Chad Michael Murray comes out August 16th and No Man of God starring Elijah Wood and Luke Kirby is out August 27th. We have to stop making Ted Bundy movies. The jump the shark moment with Ted Bundy movies is when we made Zac Efron Ted Bundy and framed him as oh my god boyfriend goals last year like we just have to stop making movies about ted bundy they're getting to the point where they're disrespectful distasteful and we all know he was a charismatic man who drove a volkswagen and like how could this happen in america like get over it elijah wood should be spending his time doing making better movies than another ted bundy movie We've got some Blu-ray releases headed your way. September's going to be a busy month. But before that, we've got the Are You Afraid of the Dark reboot series coming to DVD on August 10th. I'm pretty excited to see this. I don't know how it slipped under my radar, but it has. So you can count me in to find out what's going on with the Midnight Society. Scream Factory is bringing Elvira's Haunted Hills to Blu-ray on September 28th. What a fun romp. You know we love Elvira. The ghostess herself would not be the ghostess she is today if it wasn't for Elvira. Scream Factory is also hitting us right in the wallet with a 4K ultra remaster of the first five Halloween movies. These are set to launch also on September 28th. This launch also includes a sick vinyl box set collaboration between Scream Factory and Sacred Bone Records for entries one through three. You know I've got my pre-order in for that very beautiful black and orange Halloween 3 vinyl. Scream Factory is also bringing Alone in the Dark to Blu-ray for the first time. This is a movie I have slept on, and so it's great to see that it'll be headed our way just in time to make my 31 Days of Horror list this year. It'll be out September 14th. And not to be outdone, John Carpenter's The Thing is headed to Ultra HD 4K on September 7th. Think of all those beautiful, beautiful practical effects in 4K Ultra HD. I cannot wait. The Quiet Place Part 2 will head to Blu-ray July 27th, but if you can't wait that long to see it, it is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. 
To follow up on last week's trailer breakdown of Don't Breathe 2, the movie's following last week's trailer breakdown of Don't Breathe 2, the movie's director took to his Twitter and gave us insight to what could be in store for us in the already controversial sequel. Quote, No, he's not a hero in this one. Not even the anti-hero. He's an anti-villain. The next tweet... An anti-villain is a screenwriting term to describe a villain that is convinced that he's not one. But we agree. He definitely is. I'm a little bit skeptical about this film, like I said last week, and these tweets are not giving me hope that this is going to go in the way that we want it to. The parallels are there between what we've seen other modern, morally vague hero stories. Hopefully those tropes are subverted in some way, but we're going to have to wait and see. I don't have high confidence, but... I will see. That movie comes out in August. It's quickly approaching. Also quickly approaching is Halloween Horror Nights in Hollywood and Orlando. They released one of the first scare houses for both of the festivals, and it is The Haunting of Hill House. I am so jealous. I want to go see The Haunting of Hill House, Haunted House, so bad. I am going to watch every YouTube video of it that comes out. So please, please, YouTubers, go. Go and give us those tasty horror bits from Halloween Horror Nights. I can't wait to experience it through them. I wish I could go to Halloween Horror Nights. If you're in the Orlando or Hollywood area, you should make Halloween Horror Nights a priority for you this year. Speaking of celebrations, and one that's a little closer to home for everyone, Evil Dead is headed to the big screen again to celebrate its 40th anniversary. October 7th, there will be exclusive screenings with an intro read by the one, the only, Bruce Campbell. Fathom Events is the one putting on the show. Tickets go on sale on August 13th. Here's hoping the Deadites bless you with a showing that you can attend. Comic-Con at Home is setting up to be the first place to see the Chucky series trailer. The panel will start at 2 p.m. on July 25th. You can catch me there in overalls (laughs) waiting to hear all about my favorite killer doll. Sorry, Annabelle. Resident Evil fans got some good news this week when Capcom announced that Resident Evil Village, the latest installment in the series, had topped 4.5 million in sales and shipments. That's better news than Silent Hill fans got this week, so I will take it. At least Sil- at least it looks like Resident Evil is going to be on the way to continuing to be a good horror series that we'll get annually or biannually. So I'm excited for the next one. I think this one was really good. We also got a little bit more horror games news this week when Supermassive trademarked their next Dark Pictures anthology game, The Devil in Me. This isn't the game that will be coming out this year. It is the game that will be coming out next year, and I'm excited. It sounds like something that could have to do with possession, and I don't think that's something that they've really covered in the Supermassive game, so I would like to see that. Let me know if you want me to play any of the Dark Picture Anthology games when I start up Friday Night Frights in August. Madison, spelled very weirdly, capital M-A-D, lowercase i, capital S-O-N, is a game that has a familiar vibe to Fatal Frame. It lets the player use a camera to protect themselves from ghosts. As a person who has a undying love for Fatal Frame, you can count me in for this. The slight mechanical twist is that unlike in Fatal Frame, you don't get to see through the viewfinder of the camera to see what you're capturing. You use a Polaroid camera, so you have to wait until the film is developed to see 
what kind of ghost is attacking you. I can't wait to see how that will be used in gameplay and in puzzles. Hopefully we'll see the game as promised later in the year, but don't, don't rush it guys, take your time. We need more camera-based horror games. They're very fun. The director of the movie we're reviewing today, Preno Bailey Bond, talks about her next movie, The Things We Lost in the Fire. The Things We Lost in the Fire deals with how a terrorized female community deals with ever more extreme actions in response to male violence. I'm excited for her. We will get into it more when we get into the censor review later, but I am excited to hear how she's going to build a movie on this premise. I'm sure it will be slow and methodical and precise. Creepy Bitches, Essays on Horror from Women in Horror, is out now featuring amazing essays from some of the brightest minds in the horror community. I can't wait for my copy to arrive. Maybe we should have a Clubhouse book club for it. Let me know if you're down in the comments or on Twitter. It could be fun. Scream 2022 is finally done. The filmmakers tweeted out this week that the film is 100% done. And I am just ready for January 14th. I want to see all of my old favorites and all of the new cast that they've brought in for this. Not quite a reboot, not quite a sequel. Hopefully we'll get a teaser trailer or a trailer of some kind soon. January is only six months away. In other semi-distant horror movie news, Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley has been rated R for strong bloody violence and sexual content and language. I cannot wait to see this. It's based on the William Lindsay Grisham novel of the same name, documented that the, the book came from his time experiencing and dealing with the Spanish Civil War. And as we know, del Toro really likes to use that war as inspiration for his movies. So I am excited to see his take on this on this book. And f and finally, American Horror Stories Week is upon us. This Thursday, we will be traveling into the world of American Horror Stories for this anthology series. I cannot wait. They put out a trailer this week and a teaser trailer, and they both looked fantastic. The first episode is going to take us to the murder house. People are buying the murder house. How do you buy the murder house at this point is kind of my only question, but they're buying the murder house and they're trying to renovate it. And I don't think that's going to go great for them. We also saw a killer Santa Claus in the trailer that looked fascinating. Give me anything that gives me Silent Night, Deadly Night vibes, and I am there. And there was a lot of clips of people running, screaming from a drive-in movie theater. I'm a little skeptical that that is somehow going to tie this one to double feature. We all know I have said I'm skeptical about double feature. I don't think the idea that he had to have two different ideas that great. And that poster was atrocious. So... We'll see. I am ready. You can catch my recaps of American Horror Stories on Thursday afternoons on the Is It Halloween YouTube channel. I'm just going to go over and we're going to recap it, talk about it, have a good old time. It'll be fun. That brings us to our review. This week I'm reviewing Censor, a 2021 film by Prano Bailey Bond. The basis of this movie is pretty simple. A woman is a censor for the British Film Board in the early 80s during the video nasty era. She is a victim of some kind of childhood trauma. 
And that childhood trauma has propelled her into being what she thinks is a perfect censor. And then when a murder happens and it, her involvement in passing a movie that the murder, is, that the press believes the murder to be based off of gets out, her world starts to unravel. This movie is slow. So that is the first thing I would say. This movie is very slow. If you are not there for a dreamlike, hazy, fuzzy, all your questions aren't going to be answered type uh, movie, then this is not the movie for you. It is very good, though. I do enjoy it. I think that once it hits its peak and the the gorier, more quote-unquote video nasty-esque imagery of the movie starts. It's such a gut punch because the front of the movie was so slow and meticulous and methodical that it just feels chaotic until it, until it just kind of like pulls you off kilter into what is even going on. Yeah, so that's going to be my spoiler-free review. I think you should see it. I gave it four stars on Letterboxd, and I stand behind that. I think it's great. So now let's get into a couple of moments from the movie that I really think are going to live on in my brain, at least, and I hope that other people think about it. And one of them is very early in the movie. It's a scene between Enid and her parents and she gets a phone call that's like your parent like we made dinner reservations at this place at nine and so she goes and she meets her parents and her parents are sitting there and they hand her a piece of paper and it's a death certificate for her sister who we find out through the course of the movie went missing while Enid was watching her when they were children. Enid has never gotten over this. She is determined to believe that her sister is still out there, that her sister hasn't been murdered, and that she can find her. And both of her parents are now to the point where they want to move on. So they declare her dead, her sister dead, and give her this. And they do it in this, they frame it in this way of like, we're doing what's best for you, Enid. Like, you need to move on, and now she's dead, and this piece of paper says it, so, like, just move on. And the way that they do it is so insidious to me. They present her with this traumatic event in her life in this upscaled, kind of fancy English restaurant. They hand her this thing. They say it's for the best. They give her all the reasons why it's good for them. And then they move on to what they're going to eat tonight. And she's left reeling with the implications of what has just happened. And then she is forced to drive her car home alone. I, it just, I don't know if it is supposed to feel so heavy handed with the failure of Enid's parents, but like, the two scenes that we get with them, like, stick in my mind. The scene later in the movie when her dad blows up at her because she, even after the death certificate, even after they force this death certificate on her 
And it's clear, like, anyone who was actually caring about Enid's feelings would see that, like, she was not okay with the way that that was presented or the way that it was going down. And she's not ready to move on. She still feels responsible and you get a glimpse into why she still feels responsible because when she brings up that she found an actress that she thought might be her sister her dad loses his temper and says we try to do what's best for you and you just do whatever you want just like the day that you took her her parents absolutely blame her. There's one jump scare in the movie that is of her mother turning around and screaming at her, this is all your fault. And so the parents in this movie are just unfeeling towards Enid. Like, I understand they lost a daughter, but they still had a daughter that they seemed to not care about that that her hurt and her pain and how the event of losing her sister affected her doesn't seem to bother them in the slightest. It's rough. I mean, watching her unravel is rough. The matter-of-fact way that they play with her being almost desensitized by the violence that she saw in the movie there's like two scenes that does this really well that juxtapose this for me very well is this first real like bloody gory non-movie death we get is of this really shitty movie producer dude who's just kind of an asshole and he's coming on to her and she pushes it back and he falls through and is impaled through the head through the mouth and she just sits there and looks at it and blinks and like recoils, but does not have the visceral screaming reaction you would think someone who saw a man just die in front of them would have. And she matter-of-factly is like, I'm going to get my coat and go. Thank you for the drink, she says to the dead man as she shows herself out of his house. And then... We see in the woods, when she gets to the movie set of the sequel, to the movie that is based off of her and her sister's story, she takes an axe and she murders the man who's playing the main villain. And she doesn't have a visceral reaction to it. She thinks that the axe wound that she just created is talking to her. She's completely out of her mind. But everyone else on that movie set is losing it. The camera guy throws up. The sound guy throws up. The director comes in. He's horrified. And then she chops his head off. And the actress fucking rightfully loses her mind and fucking starts running off in the other direction. I like that... I like that we give, they give, the, the movie gives Enid the response that people who think that censors need to be there because we're corrupting people and doing that kind of like horror movies are corrupting and bad and it's causing more evil in the world. She is, is quote unquote desensitized by it, but the people who make it, who are real people, who are uh, emotional and are not, are not, Right. It is, it very much is, it like it is something broken with people, not, not the movies that, that do it. 
So I think it's really smart, intelligent commentary on censors, and it really does a great job of framing the hysteria of the Video Nasties era. Yeah, I, I really like this movie. It's very slow, though, so keep that in mind for when you want that kind of movie, but you should definitely watch it. It's, it's definitely one of the better movies I've watched this year. So yeah, four stars for censor. That's going to do it for this episode. Be sure to follow the podcast on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at a Halloween club. You can find me the ghostess streaming on Twitch at Miss Nintendeek 64 or on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Miss Nintendeek 64. It's getting late. So you know the drill sleep or don't. Thank you.